It's your first day in the operating room. Your patient is rolled into the OR. They get on the bed. You're helping put your patient on the monitors with your preceptor. And all of a sudden, someone shoves you to the head of the bed, puts a hand in your mask, and mouths go. This happened to me as a student. I have been guilty of doing this to so many other learners. Um, I see people do this with med students, with physician residents, with RRNAs. Anna, has this happened to you? And what was that like? And what do you do in that moment? So I have, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I will. I remember the first, very first time I was standing at the, uh, the at attention kind of stance, hands behind the back, you know, ready, nodding attentively, ready to learn and receive feedback. And then they're like, okay, push me to the head of the bed. And then like handed me things. <laughs> And they were like, go. So in that moment, you, you get very like, you get very dear in the headlights. You get very like, oh my gosh, like this person, you know, like the patient's asleep. And then you are expected to then do the steps. There's a lot of steps that happen very quickly in a sequential order that you've maybe practiced in a simulation lab, but like not in real life. I'll say this. I did not get my first intubation or my first LMA placement. But it was very much interesting to see, like, you know, you imagine this moment for like years. If you're going to CRNA school, you're like, oh my gosh, one day I'm going to do that. And then all of a sudden they're like, and go for it. And you're like, whoa, it's definitely overwhelming. So as we're diving into this episode, uh, this is for people who are pre-anesthesia. If you are a med student, if you're a resident, we're going to dive into all of this today. But as a quick introduction, my name is Anna. I am now a second year RRNA. And I start clinical in real life full-time in January, but I have had some clinical experiences so far. I was a travel nurse for about two years, and I was staffed for, in the CVICU for one year before that. And this is my business partner. I'm Chrissy. I'm a nurse anesthetist. I've been a CRNA for six years now. I've precepted RRNAs. I have been a clinical coordinator in the past. Um, so I've seen a lot of this, I've done a lot of this, and I'm really excited to get into this episode today where we're going to talk about what you can do ahead of time before you hit your first day in the operating room, or if you've already been in the OR for a little bit, just to kind of improve your experience with induction of anesthesia. It's one of our most critical points of the case, um, one of the most important things to master, and one of the things that people get caught up on the most as well, of course. So we're going to give you some tips today on how to make that process smoother, make it a little less intimidating and help you get through it. So let's dive in. Let's do it. So as a learner myself, who is about to start <laughs> full-time, you know, 40 to 60 hours a week in the OR, what's the first thing to know about the induction of general anesthesia? What should be the very like first step as I'm like diving into it? What would you say to people who are in my position, people who are in didactic, people who are interested in anesthesia? What's step one? The number one thing, if you know nothing else, is to know your drugs. When you hit the operating room on day one, this is something you have complete control over. If you've never stepped foot in a simulation lab, you've never stepped foot in an operating room, if you've never watched a single YouTube on anesthesia, if at least you come in the room knowing about your medications, you will make that process so much smoother and safer 
and you're going to give us a lot more leeway to teach you and empower you. So that's something you have control over now and you don't need to be in an operating room for. Um, so for example, um, knowing the induction drugs associated with putting people to sleep, um, no, no propofol, no etomidate, no ketamine, no why you would choose to induce with one or the other. Um, 99% of the time we're inducing with propofol, but you need to know the mechanism of action, the dosing ranges, what are the adverse effects that you're going to see? Um, know how long it lasts. When does it have its peak effect? Because this is all going to affect the timing of what we do when we put the patient off to sleep. Understand paralytics or neuromuscular blocking agents, which is like, you know, the more official term for these medications. When do they kick in? What's the dose? When are they contraindicated, especially succinylcholine? Hint, hint, we're about to do an entire episode on this. So make sure you like and subscribe to the Confident Care Academy channel so that you can see that video when it drops. But um, you need to know the pros and cons of, you know, every single medication you give and every single, you know, indication, contraindication. And it's a lot at first. Um, it's going to take a lot of flashcards and memorizing, and maybe you don't use all of these drugs all the time. So it's a little bit abstract, but once you step into the OR, if you already know the doses and what they're for, and when you can't use them, you're already set up for success. You're already going to be a much safer learner and provider. And we're going to feel like we have a lot more room to show you the ropes, show you how to do things. So from your perspective, Anna, um, you know, you're in didactic right now in school. Um, you've done some shadowing in the OR. Um, you know, what is, we've done like a whole episode on like study techniques, but like, what is like a good way that you found for studying these medications? Like, is there anything that's helped you at all? I know that you've had to do this pretty recently, a lot more recently than I have. So I learned <laughs> by spending a day shadowing one of my old program directors, not the current program director, one of the first days that I was in the OR with him, and I had not taken pharmacology yet in my defense. However, I was pulling up medications for a case, and he held up a syringe, and it was lidocaine, and he said, how many milligrams are in here? And he had drawn it up. And then he was like, this is the percentage of the medication. How many milligrams of lidocaine are in here? And I like, just like looked at him like deer in the headlights. I was like, uh, I was like about, he's like, there's uh. nothing about an anesthesia. How many milligrams of lidocaine are in the syringe? And then I realized in that moment, I was like, I need to study differently. Like I need to study <laughs> pretty differently to be able to know, you know, looking down, not just looking at oh, the dosage of propofol is 1.5 to like two, but for kids it's 2.5 to three milligrams per kilo. You're like, okay, well like how many milligrams is in this syringe of propofol right now? How many milligrams oh, is in yes, this? Oh, yeah, the concentration. It's the concentration. Okay, this is 1% lidocaine. How much is gonna be in da 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 So I realized that was one of the big differences was that I was learning textbook, which is correct, but there's a little bit of difference in real life anesthesia, especially with like epidurals, which I haven't touched at all because like in the ICU, we really don't mess with like local anesthetics that much. Like it's, it, that's like all brand new to me. But then I realized like in that one moment that <laughs> it's going to be very much uh, like concentration is very important. Knowing exactly not only like what the mechanism of action is, but like 
what your dosing is and what dose you have like in your hands. So that was something that like hit me <laughs> definitely for sure. And I'm preclinical. I am like spending a little bit of time right now, but I've now started to, as I go in and I'm shadowing, I try to look at my cases before and then look up the medications that I might expect because there's so much with the art of anesthesia that I'm very much learning and you get to make all of these choices. And I think that that you don't necessarily realize as you're in didactic and you're just like learning, you know, you're reading about a surgery, you're reading about a medication. You're not realizing that you are like making this entire anesthetic plan for a patient and their past medical history is going to influence like all of the choices that you make. So I've got a lot to learn, but I'll give it kind of back over to you, Chrissy, like in terms of what you expect from your students with drugs, like on day one, like I kind of talked about like, yeah, I missed my first intubation, but I was drawing up meds for the case. So they expected me to like know all of the meds like that you have. So like, what else do you have for learners to know as far as like the medication piece of things, right? Because it's not just like, this is the mechanism of action. It's like, okay, well, why are you choosing that drug over another drug, right? Yeah, I mean, oh gosh, that's so, that's such a good point. I See, concentration is so, it's so routine for me now. I'm so far, it's, it's so mm-hmm. important to have your perspective as someone who's like in the process of learning. Cause like, I even forgot to mention that. Cause to me, it's like, well, obviously, you know, the concentration, but when you're in the ICU, a lot of your medications are kind of like already in the right amount. I mean, even from the time that I was a nurse until now, like things have really changed a lot for nurses. Like I was a nurse before barcode scanners were really a big thing. They kind of rolled out um, like my last six months of nursing. Like we just started barcode scanning. Um, And, you know, there's still like the multi-use insulin vials at the time. Like, have you ever used one of those, Anna? Like, did you ever see the multi-use insulin vials? Uh, not at Hopkins, but at a lot of the community hospitals that I travel to. Mm-hmm. And it would just be like in the fridge. Like there would be like the Lispro and like the Lantus right next to each other. So like, yeah, yeah. you got to like know that you're given the right yeah. type of insulin. Yeah. Like really <laughs> pay attention. So, you know, in the OR, I expect that like times 10, right? So, you know, if you draw up 2% lidocaine, you should know that's 20 milligrams of lidocaine per ml. And if you drawn up five mLs, how many milligrams? One hundred. Okay, it's a yeah. hundred. Okay, well, what's the appropriate dose for this patient? Why 60. are we giving lidocaine? Like, like, what's the reason? So there's like a couple reasons to give lidocaine, right? Um, it can decrease the burning of propofol. Well, why does propofol burn? Okay, it's because it has um, a really basic pH. What's the pH of propofol? Well, it's like about eleven. I want to say off the top of my head. Um, like, okay, um, can you mix the lidocaine into the propofol? Um, well, yes, you can, and it's very effective, but if you leave it out for too many hours, then it can actually form, um, little micro embolisms. So that's why you're not textbook. The textbooks say you're not supposed to mix the lidocaine into the propofol. Okay. What else can you do about it? Oh, well, we let it dwell in the vein for like three minutes. That way it actually like numbs up the vein itself. That's another option as well. So it's like interesting. Like I don't necessarily expect a student to know all those details. I know I just spit a lot out at you, but I do expect a student to know the dose, the concentration, who cannot give it, and what can go wrong when you give a medication, especially when we start to talk about like things like propofol. Well, if you give two milligrams per kilogram of propofol to an elderly patient in heart failure with an injection fraction of 10%, well, what is a side effect of propofol? It causes myocardial Myocardial depression. It also causes, and and you vasodilate with it, right? So the Mm -hmm. patient loses their preload. 
and they get myocardial depression and they're already a cardiac cripple and now they code. So maybe we're going to either use an inhalational induction. Uh, maybe we're going to use some opioid mixed with inhalational. That's a very common way to induce patients in cardiac anesthesia. Maybe we'll do some propofol, but maybe we'll just give one ML at a time and then kind of like sneak in some gas. Maybe we'll use Automidate. Maybe we'll use ketamine, but what's what's the downside of ketamine? It, if you give an induction dose of ketamine, uh, they can get pulmonary hypertension. So if they have right heart failure, that can be a problem as well. And it, and it just gives and it gives hypertension. It, it gives hypertension. A side effect and of then, induction doses of ketamine is a hypertensive response. So like you have to know right. all these little nuances, right? So for somebody who's pre-anesthesia or somebody who's about to start didactic, all of that was a lot. <laughs> that's, that's a lot, right? It's like, lot. how do you, I guess, use your time while you're an ICU nurse to get the most out of your kind of pharmacology education? And then how do you start grad school like during didactic? Let's say like if you're in a front-loaded program like me, like okay, how are you going to learn medications to the point where you can kind of show up in the OR and be like, okay, yes, I like have this familiarity with these medications. Like I don't have the skills down yet, but I at least know my meds. Like what tips do you have with that? So again, you know, I know that some of you are going to want to write this down. Um, so if you're studying before clinical and you want to know what to know about each drug before you hit the operating room, um, the things you need to know about each drug, once again, the name of the drug, including the generic, the type of drug it is, so the pharmacological class, and what receptor it works on um, and how that receptor works, so the mechanism of action. I'm going to need you to know the appropriate dosing and the dosing ranges, as well as the concentration, so the milligrams per ml or micrograms per ml that you're going to commonly see. Um, of course, like sometimes that will change from manufacturer to manufacturer, but most of the time it's pretty standardized. Um, when, when you give it, so indications for the drug, who you give it to and why we give it and contraindications when not to give it or what kind of patient would we avoid it in. If you can know those seven things, you're going to be set up for success. That's huge. So coming in, if you are an ICU nurse or a... SRNA who is in didactic, if you say you're recommending that the people know these seven things and then what would be a good way to kind of get that foundation? Like, let's say, you know, you want to do anesthesia and you want to kind of get a head start on the pharmacology side as you are preparing to go to grad school. What recommendations do you have there? Yeah. So obviously shameless plug. <laughs> Guys, this Confident Care Academy podcast, you know, we're a free resource for you here. We love giving you free advice about, um, you know, anesthesia school and being a nurse and how to develop yourself professionally. But in our Confident Care Academy membership, we go way deeper into in-depth pathophysiology and pharmacology. We teach it at the graduate school level. Um, every single lecture that we write, we do from the most current body of research. We do a deep dive into the internet. We go to the original studies on like how these drugs were made and tested on mice. And we're going like way deeper than what the textbooks do. And Anna, um, you know, has even had a really unique experience as a RNA during her didactic. Um, and I'll let you speak on that yourself, Anna, but, um, it's definitely helped her as well as some of our other, 
um, students who are in CRNA school during their transition into school, we've had a lot of people say it's really helped them um, with their foundation and speeding up their study time. And you could speak to that more. And I don't want to, you know, speak for you. Yeah, for sure. So check out the link in the description. You'll get a free epinephrine lecture, and that is straight from the pharmacology library. I think everybody will enjoy that lecture. So definitely get the free epinephrine lecture link in the description below. And I will, I'll just agree, working with Confident Care Academy, we write all of the pharmacology and the pathophysiology lectures from the sources that we, you will use in CRNA school. So we've had people use our pharmacology library as a study resource for interview prep, and then they get into CRNA school. We're now hearing sRNAs or rRNAs saying that it's helping them out a lot to have this kind of broad level overview as they are then supplementing with all of the learning that they're doing in grad school. I'll say for myself that it's decreased the amount of time studying that I spend in didactic because we are doing these deep dives as I'm writing the slides and working with Chrissy. So definitely check out Confident Care Academy if you know that this is something that you're interested in and you are pre-grad school. We're excited after we finish the core library to start working on more anesthesia topics, but definitely check out the pharmacology and pathophysiology lectures in Confident Care Academy, which really circles into, so we know the medications that we're giving and the why we're giving the medications. Do you have more about like the why of anesthesia? Because I feel like there's also a lot of mechanical steps to do an anesthesia that's not just the pulling up of the meds, right? Like is, what do you have to say to that, Chrissy? The why? Uh, that's I think the biggest shell shock to hitting the operating room in general. I think um, as an ICU nurse, I pictured, even though I shadowed in the operating room, I really pictured anesthesia being ICU on steroids. I pictured it being like, oh, giving lots of drugs, but more of them, <laughs> like titrating yeah. drugs, but more. And it really couldn't be farther from the truth. Like such a huge part of what we do is like, you know, not only techniques and skills and procedures, but it's like putting together this entire clinical picture. And there's a thousand different steps and things that you're going to have to integrate. Yes. It's the medications. Yes. It's procedures like intubation and placing lines, but you know, there's a million steps that we do in the day, especially during induction of anesthesia. So it's really important to study induction of anesthesia ahead of time. Um, I do encourage you to watch like YouTube videos on it, like induction of anesthesia YouTube videos. And obviously you're watching one now. So this is a great one to start with, but knowing why we do every step that we do. So something I used to do before I hit the operating room was I would write down on a piece of paper every single step that would take place at the micro level. And then I would talk my way through it. And this is a really great exercise for you to do as well. So I would write like really simple things like room set up in the morning and I would have a whole checklist and I would bring that checklist in with me, including my machine checkout, by the way, there's going to be a whole nother episode. We're going to have to do a whole anesthesia machine episode. Ah, we'll get to it. But, um, you know, I had a whole checklist for that. And then it's like, okay, go see patient and pre-op put in IV, like make, like double check these labs. Right. And then it's like patient rolls into room. Like I'm most, at most facilities, you'll bring the patient in the room, especially for the first case of the day. Um, get patient on bed, put them on monitors, like turn on blood pressure cuff, make sure it's cycling every two to three minutes, like whatever you want to debate for that patient. Uh, like open Epic, all of these little micro steps are things that are not going to come naturally to you in the beginning. So if you can write them down and like picture it happening in your head and then like leading up to like, okay, now that the patient is on the bed, 
with the monitors, everything's turned on and ready to go. Like what's the next step? And it's one of our most important steps. It's pre-oxygenating. So like this is a, a really great point where people will probably start quizzing you. Like once the patient's asleep or maybe before they're asleep, like why are we pre-oxygenating? How long do we pre-oxygenate? What is pre-oxygenating going to do for you? Like these are really common questions. There's like a term. It's like, it's not PC anymore. And like, you know, you like, I don't, you're going to hear people say this. They're going to be like, oh, like pimping questions. Right. And like, okay, obviously it's not like a great term that we should be using. There's like a lot of implications to that phrase, but, um, you know, people are going to ask you those types of questions on the spot. They're going to quiz you. They're going to quiz you. They're going to drill you. So it's really important for you to picture those steps so that you, you can go through them more smoothly and then understanding the why behind each step. So why are we pre-oxygenating? Why do we place the stickers in the position that we put them in? We're denitrogenating, you're getting the nitrogen out of the lungs. And then, you know, once you remove all of the nitrogen from the alveoli and, and how long do you have to pre-oxygenate for, right? It's like five vital capacity breaths. So what's a vital capacity breath? That's like when the patient exhales everything and then inhales all the way or three to five minutes of like a tight mass seal, no air leaks. So make sure you're seeing end tidal CO2 on the monitor um, of just regular tidal volume breathing. So they're normal breathing or the end tidal oxygen and like confirmed by your end tidal oxygen on your monitor should be at least um, like 85% or greater. 80, yeah. Um, ideally a hundred, right? It's exciting because I'm like, I like know these things now and I'm like, yeah, like, okay, yep, 85%. Yep, vital capacity. Yep, sorry, keep going, Chrissy. <laughs> it's great. That's exactly what you should be doing after your head, like light bulb, light bulb, light bulb. But then, um, you know, so, and here's like a little pop quiz for Anna. So if you have adequately pre-oxygenated your patient and they don't have any like significant comorbidities, they're a young, healthy patient, like how much time does that buy you of apnea? So the patient has gone to sleep now, we gave the propofol, we gave rocuronium, they're paralyzed, they're no longer breathing. You're gonna take away the oxygen mask and you're gonna put in a breathing tube. How much time do you have before the patient desaturates? My understanding is you've bought about two minutes of apneic time to place a tube, is my understanding. It's actually closer to 10. 10? 10 minutes. If, so you've adequate, if you've adequately pre-oxygenated your patient, you should have about 10 minutes because what's going to happen is the red blood cells are going to go through the lungs. They're going to pick up the oxygen that's still chilling in the alveoli, right? And it's going to continue to circulate. And then your tissues are going, and then obviously over time, that's going to get, you know, you're going to exhale. It's not going to be full of oxygen anymore. Um, and then but your body is still going to be carrying on the red blood cells that oxygen from earlier. And in a young, healthy patient, if you've truly pre-oxygenated adequately, which people in the clinical environment rarely do fully, um, you should buy yourself up to 10 minutes. So it's really important to drive that point home to learners, like for adequate pre-oxygenation and to slow down. You don't have to rush to get the tube in because if you've done a good job adequately pre-oxygenating, then you're going to be fine. But that's why it's important to not take those shortcuts. Don't rush through it. We should breathe pre-oxygenating patients while they're sitting up, ideally, to improve their um, filling up more of their lungs with oxygen because when they're in the supine position, when they're flat, lying up towards the ceiling, um, they lose 20% of their functional residual capacity. So less lung volume in there. So you've, you've lost some of that pre-oxygenated volume in the lung space. But if you have a sitting up patient with a perfect mask seal and they have 100% oxygen in your lungs and they don't have like 
chronic disease or illness and they're not morbidly obese, you're going to buy yourself up to 10 minutes of bath time. So that's like a really important thing about, again, knowing why we do everything we do. So as a learner, to just acknowledge and then to be mindful that it's different in the operating room and to like de-escalate that sense of this is an emergency in a code blue situation. Because I think that as a learner, I already have all of the, <laughs> you know, the deer in the headlights, the all of the steps in sequential order. But then in the back of my mind, I'm still, it still feels like I, it's about to be a code blue situation, which oftentimes it is sometimes, but it's typically not, especially if you are taking those steps, you do get those up to 10 minutes of apneic time. That's a very different situation from placing a breathing tube in the middle of a code blue in the middle of a COVID surge. So that's something mindset wise. I also just wanted to echo really quickly about the checklist that you were talking about earlier. One of the mistakes that I made early on during shadowing was that I had a checklist and I was able to, during my drive to clinical, verbalize the checklist out loud. But then when it got to the moment, I moved on too quickly from the checklist and I thought that I knew how to do my machine check like from memory and I didn't and I should have kept the checklist and I tried to fly without the checklist too soon. So <laughs> I, there's a lot of value to the writing it down and to the verbalizing and then, you know, if you need to keep your checklist in your pocket and refer back to it, that's okay too. And that kind of leads into, well, we were talking about the RSI versus a standard induction of anesthesia. Okay, well then that leads into, well, what do you do in emergency, right? Because some cases are urgent and emergent, Chrissy, right? Like what yeah. do you have to say for learners managing and navigating airway emergencies, right? Well, so there's like a couple thoughts that come to my brain here. So it's interesting hearing the perspective of you know, oh, this isn't an RSI and a COVID-19 patient. You're right, those patients have very little reserve um, even when we pre-oxygenated them really well, um, they would still desaturate and then it'd be really hard to recruit them and get their oxygen levels back up. And that's what made COVID-19 so scary and so unique. That is not the norm for almost any other patient population. Um, it was, you know, that hypoxia that was like refractory to treatment is what made and still makes the disease very scary. But, um, you know, even when you're in emergencies, and you have to do a rapid sequence intubation on the floor, or you go and respond to a code on the floor, like it's still important to slow down and do things right. Because if I'm showing up to a code blue, people are doing CPR, there's a thousand people in the room, there's chaos. For all intents and purposes, this patient is already dead. And anything I do can either make the situation better or it can make the situation worse. And the worst thing I can do is to rush or to panic or to, you know, do something in a suboptimal way where, you know, I'm rushing to get the tube in as fast as I can. And in doing so, I don't pull out the bed from the wall. I don't have the patient pulled up to the top of the bed. I don't have the right equipment in hand. If I do that to try to be a hero or try to be faster, I, and I don't get the airway on the first try, I could cause additional swelling or bleeding in the airway and make it harder to get the breathing tube in. Now we've gone from a situation that's potentially reversible to a situation that's potentially irreversible, right? Or harder to reverse. So it's still important, even in those moments, to slow down, take a deep breath, 
make sure the bed's pulled out the wall. Take the head off the bed if it's like an ICU bed or a med surge bed, right? Get the patient at the top of the bed. Um, you know, if this patient hasn't coded yet, pre-oxygenate. If they're already coding, someone's already bagging them, like take over the mass ventilating. A lot of times people who are mass ventilating on the units aren't doing it um, maybe as well as it could be done because they're not anesthesia professionals and they're they're not doing it every day like you do right so like let's get some oxygen back into the lungs um let's use a video scope so we have a higher chance of first pass success if you have one accessible um or maybe if this person's going to be a challenging airway we just put in an lma and get them oxygenated quickly and then switch over to a breathing tube later right but we're going to do things right and we're going to slow down because rushing is not going to help the situation um it's also important, you know, when we hit the operating room and we think about routine induction of anesthesia, like Anna asked, like, what's the next step? Know what your next step is going to be. So what happens if I put this patient to sleep and, um, and I can't ventilate them? What's the next step? Well, it's really important for you guys to memorize the difficult airway algorithm. So we'll post a link to that. You can look that up. Um, but you know, what's your next step going to be if you can't ventilate? We, usually you should put in like an oral airway. You should be changing something every time. Like what's the definition of insanity? Trying something over and over and expecting a different result. So we're going to put in an oral airway. We're going to change the position of their head. We're going to go to two hand mass ventilation. You're going to ask somebody to squeeze the bag while you use two hands. We're going to change the way that we're holding their jaw. We're going to ask for help. Um, you go to intubate. You can't see right away. Okay, what do we need to do? Do we need to change the pillow height? Do you need to take out a pillow? Do you need to add a blanket underneath? Do you need to switch to a different blade? Do you need a video scope, right? We're going to always think about what our next step is going to be. If you get into the can't intubate, can't ventilate scenario, if you can't intubate, you should always go back to ventilating. What if you can't ventilate? Just put in an LMA, put in a supraglottic airway. Um, if for some reason that's not working, now we have to think about what's next. Are we going to wake this patient up? Are we able to wake the patient up? If it's an elective surgery, the answer is usually yes. Our drugs are very short acting, thankfully. Propofol lasts for about five minutes. Um, and if you are in a hospital, one of the most important points I think I can just keep re-emphasizing over and over is every single little micro step. So you've written it down, you're visualizing your way through it knowing why we do what we do and then like what the next step's going to be if you can't ventilate, if you can't intubate. And then even working your way through the difficult algorithm all the way to, um, we used to call it a surgical cricothyroidotomy. The new name for it is EFONA, Emergency Front of Neck Airway. Um, actually, I recently did a workshop for this at work. It was really great. We did it on pig tracheas. And this is like a very important step to have in the back of your mind as the end of the difficult airway algorithm and knowing how to do it, keeping yourself fresh by attending those workshops at AANA and keeping fresh on that skill, um, watching those YouTube videos, making sure that if you're doing anesthesia at a dental practice or an outpatient clinic, that they have a kit for this. There's now like a universal standard of kits. that's simplified the process, knowing that step, um, Knowing every step of like what could happen in an emergency is the best way you can prepare for the clinical environment. Um, Anna, did they teach you about like this EFONA at school yet? Have you guys talked about it at all? So we've learned the even the retrograde intubation. We learned surgical cricoid um, EFONA, that terminology 
I heard it AANA. It's, it, it seems, you know, it, it, different terminology, same emergency airway algorithm based off of the emergency airway algorithms that we were learning. It was interesting hearing you talking about keeping the skills fresh, always taking a step forward while troubleshooting, you know, the, okay, do something different every single time. I'll have a link in the description to a video that's, it's hard to watch, but it's the Miss Bromley um, case. And that there's a, it's for training for anesthesia providers, but it was a situation that they should have escalated. And then everybody made a series of choices that ended up where it was like an elective procedure that ended up with very severe, terrible patient outcomes because every step along the way, they didn't take the next step forward. So that's, I think, good to watch to kind of realize the gravity of the situation. But then also, I think then the, the what next is keeping the skills fresh, keeping up to date with knowledge, going to these conferences, which we're going to have an episode about professional development and definitely check out that podcast episode because that's really where it does tie in, I feel like. And it's very interesting overall to see that, like, yes, you do have to practice these skills. And you were talking about, Chrissy, like an airway, um, a, like teaching session that you did. What do you have to say for people who, you know, you've learned, you've done your book studying and now you need to like learn these skills? Like, what do you have to say about like skill acquisition? One of the best ways that you can develop these skills before you get there, or at least reduce your learning curve, is to practice ahead of time. And you're probably thinking, Chrissy, what are you talking about? Like, I don't even have access to a sim lab or like, how do you practice these things ahead of time at all? Well, you can actually get a lot of these skills down before you even hit the operating room just by imagining them in your head. And I know you think I'm crazy, but let me read this study for you. And I'm gonna read it right off of my computer here. So, and this study was done in 1995, but there's been other studies since then that have shown the same thing. This was by Pasquale Leone and colleagues, and they studied the acquisition of fine motor skills for piano players. So they had three different groups, right? The first group, uh, and they all had to learn a five finger exercise on the piano. They all, all three groups practiced um, two hours a day for five days. The first group, the control group, got no practice during this time interval. The second group imagined the exercise only. So they would close their eyes and picture themselves playing this piano sequence in their head two hours a day for five days. And the third group actually had access to a piano and did physical practice. So when it came down to it, of course, the third group did best, the piano playing group. But the second group, the ones who had imagined it only, still had significant performance improvement over the control group, meaning people who had no practice at all. And they actually did MR, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation of the um, participants' brains. And they found that group two, the people who had imagined peeling the piano, had the same neuroplastic changes as the physical practice group, meaning their brain still started to form those neuro pathways and how to play the piano. So this shows that of course, in-person practice is always going to be best, but there is still clear benefit to simulation, even if you're not in a simulation lab, simply writing down the steps and closing your eyes and imagining them. Imagine yourself putting monitors on the patient, turning up the flows on the anesthesia machine, taking the suction and putting it under the pillow, 
Um, imagine yourself hitting the blood pressure cuff, making sure that it's cycling frequently enough, looking to make sure that your end tidal CO2 is coming up, your end tidal carbon dioxide, all of these things, literally just visualizing yourself going through the steps is going to make you smoother when you hit the operating room. What do you do after the breathing tubes in? That's is when most people freeze, right? You like kind of stare at your work and then everybody makes a joke in anesthesia, like stop admiring your work. It's time to connect to the ventilator, right? So picture yourself connecting to the breathing tube, blowing up the pilot balloon, testing to make sure the, you know, the tube is in the right place. And then ultimately turning the ventilator on, turning on your anesthesia gases, adjusting your flows and so forth. And if you haven't been in the hour yet and you don't know what I'm talking about, um, you know, I definitely encourage you guys to watch some more YouTube videos on induction of anesthesia. Um, Anna and I are going to have access to a simulation lab. So this is something coming up for you guys. We're going to have a skills library that we develop over the next year. Um, and we will be doing like demos of this for you guys, which we're really excited about. But in the meantime, there are a few videos out there floating around. Um, I'll try to find a good one and link it below. I'll also link the study below, but even just sitting there and visualizing it is a huge help. Did you find that to be helpful at all for you when you were going in, even for your shadow days? Absolutely. And I think even early in the episode, I talked about, I moved on too quickly from a checklist, which, you know, I've only had six clinical days so far. So I'm really in the very beginning stages of my learning journey, but practicing on my way to the OR, like as I was driving, cause it was like a 45 minute drive to one of the clinical sites. Mm -hmm. I would walk through the steps in my head of the anesthesia machine check and I would talk it out loud and that helps a lot. It's really interesting to hear the research backing all of this up. I have, I don't know if y'all listen to the, how we got here episode, which we'll link in the description below. Y'all should check that out about like <laughs> what kind of brought Chrissy and I both here, but I have, a dance background and all of our teachers would always say that you should be running the routine or running the choreography in your head while other groups were going. And they would say, it's like the same as practicing. You need to be actively participating when you are not physically performing the moves yourself. And that's how you're going to pick up choreography quickly. And that's how you're going to decrease your learning time is by being actively engaged on the sidelines. And it's really interesting to see that kind of parallel within medicine because it's it's true it's different but the same right it's like okay how are you going to learn a new skill and then get that skill from a textbook into your body and there's just interesting kind of parallels there overall i'll say this as a new learner like you i definitely feel slow still but also i mean what advice do you have for a learner who like definitely feels slow basically like i'm like a second week or a third week student i'm like within my first month of being in the or like what advice do you have for somebody who's like brand new to clinical like a brand new first month srna and the or what would you say to me <laughs> i would say good <laughs> um and i know that sounds like crazy but i want you to be slow i want you to slow down and do things slowly and deliberately um, I do think checklists are the key to safety and success. So get there early. I would get to clinical so early in the beginning. Um, I can now wrap my brain around students who in the beginning show up at like, you know, 6.30 a.m. for a 7 a.m. case start. Like when you're new to the hospital, you barely know where the locker room is. I know you've not done thorough checks in the morning because they take a long time when you're new. Um, I used to get to clinical, I think my first week ever, I was in the OR at like five in the morning. 
Um, eventually it became 5.30, then it became 6. So like, yeah, by the time I was ready to graduate, sure, 6.30 if it wasn't a complex case setup. But um, that took a long time to get there. So give yourself time, um, bring checklists, go slow, and again, stop and take deep breaths when you're feeling tunnel visioned in that moment. Like you, you know, you connect to the, you know, you get the tube through the cords for the first time, you've intubated successfully, and now you freeze. Now what? Like, okay, take a breath. I'm going to blow up the balloon, right? Connect to the ventilator, right? Close the APL valve, the adjustable pressure limiting valve. It's a thing on the anesthesia machine that allows us to fill part from the circuit so we can deliver breath. Check to make sure your breathing tube's in the right place. How do I do that? Okay, I'm going to look for end tidal CO2, chest rise, condensation in the tube, and listen to bilateral breath sounds. And then we're going to put the patient on the vent. Like, again, visualizing those steps ahead of time will help you kind of recognize those little snafus and, um, and moments where people tend to get caught as you're visualizing yourself through the process, right? Because your brain's naturally, as you're closing your eyes and going through those motions, going to hit those little points where you go, wait, what's next? Because that's what's going to happen in real life, right? You're going to ultimately freeze and go, what's next? So work those out in your brain ahead of time and slow down when we're in the moment. And don't be afraid to ask for help. Like, wait a second, am I missing something? It's okay, it's okay to ask. Like, that's what we're there for. We don't expect you. We expect you to show up and be ready to go and start performing from day one, but we don't expect you to be an expert from day one. We expect you to ask for help and kind of like struggle through things, right? I think there can be a whole other episode that we do just on like communication tips for SRNAs specifically, because there's so much here. <laughs> but these are great tips. I know that this <laughs> episode so would have helped me a lot as I was starting CRNA school or as I was looking forward to it, because there's so much that's unknown. And I think even earlier in the episode, you were saying you imagined that anesthesia was like ICU nursing on steroids, like you're just titrating more drips, but there's really like, it's such a different world. <laughs> And it's okay that we don't know everything at the very beginning, but we do have a lot to learn. So kind of walking through expectations, what those steps are. I mean, this episode would have decreased my anxiety for sure as I was starting CRNA school. What else do you have for us, Chrissy? We're all just here taking notes. <laughs> Everyone's like taking notes. Okay, I have one last note for you guys. And this is something I love to work on with people who are new to the OR. It's listening. So not only listening to your preceptor, one of the hardest things when we teach people how to intubate is, and like, I feel like I'm constantly teaching people how to intubate, right? Like people come up from the ER learning to intubate, residents, PAs, fellow, uh, like uh, pulmonology fellows. Like I, there's like always people learning to intubate in the OR. And one of the most important things you could do when you're new to intubation is to listen while you're performing the skill, because we're gonna guide you through it. We're gonna talk you through it. And we're gonna ask you questions like, what do you see? And you need to be able to stop and take a deep breath and verbally answer so that we can help you. Of course, correct. Um, you know, if you are getting too close to the teeth, people tend to kind of lean back and like tilt the blade back and, and get too close to the teeth because subconsciously your brain thinks it's going to help you get a better view. And we'll talk about this in like an intubation tips video. Um, again, coming to the skills library soon. So make sure you're subscribed and you can follow along so you know when that hits. Um, but, you know, if someone says like, hey, you're too close to the teeth, or we say, hey, pause what you're doing, we need you to stop and pause in that moment. So listening out for the words that people are saying around you, again, that tunnel visioning, it's so common when you're new and your adrenaline's pumping. So learning to kind of control that adrenaline with breath work and 
opening your ears. It's just an important skill to master in medicine in general. And that's also going to help you for listening out to alarms, like learning to become one with a pulse oximeter. This is like my favorite thing. Like ICU nurses and PACU nurses and everybody everywhere hates the sound when the pulse ox is on. Like, ah, oh, why does anesthesia always have that beeping? Like, it's so loud. Like, what's the beeping? But the pulse oximeter has something on it called tone modulation, which is a feature that pairs a pitched sound to each oxygen saturation level. So for example, 100% O2 sat has the highest pitch beep and 99 is a tiny bit deeper and 98, 97, 96, 95. And so you might have noticed during an RSI, if anesthesia comes up to the floor, we turn that sound on. It's not just so that we can hear the heart rate, like, yeah, heart rate's important, but it's not really what we're listening out for. We're primarily listening so we know the oxygen saturation without looking up at the monitor. And so, you know, we know the patient's saturation it goes beep, 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 boop, 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 right? Like you already know what's happening. So um, learning to become one with the pulse oximeter, I love to ask students, like, just close your eyes and try to guess what the SAT is. Um, or like if a ventilator alarm's going off, I'll like be like, close your eyes, like tell me what alarm you hear. Like I want them to identify that it's the monitor or the ventilator. So like learning to like have those guessing games of like, what is that sound I'm hearing and learning to hear it all at the same time. Um, if you hear a lot of suctioning in the field, like you hear a big slurping sound, did the surgeon just suck up a bunch of blood coming out of the patient or was it irrigation? And then looking over the drapes and knowing what it is and keeping track of your ins and outs, knowing if the patient's bleeding or not. All of that situational awareness is something that you're going to have to master in the early days of anesthesia. So just learning to listen to words, sounds, alarms, it's going to be huge. And again, we don't expect you to master that day one, but that slowing down and listening piece is going to be key to reducing your learning curve and setting you up for success. That's huge. There's so much, so much to learn here. I hope everybody really enjoys this episode because I know that I would have really enjoyed it as someone who was starting out in anesthesia school or somebody who was looking forward to it because I think people do want to hear like what it's really like, right? You know, like you dream about this for years and you work towards it for years. And this is stuff that's kind of exciting. It's like exciting to hear. I do think that people are going to be stoked about those intubation tips episode and like the skills library in general. So make sure y'all are subscribed to the channel. Please uh, rate the podcast. Give us five stars. It helps us with reach, helps us reach more ICU nurses just like you or SRNAs just like you. And please make sure to comment what you'd like for us to talk about next time. We are, we're excited to film the next video, which I believe is going to be paralytics and or neuromuscular relaxing yes. agents. So definitely come back for that episode. We'll see you then. 